0: Chapter Eleven of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by The Grumpy Old Squid. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter Eleven Some Lights and Shadows of Diplomatic Life. There is a trait in the lives of great diplomatists, of which it is just possible someone or other of my readers may not have heard, which is, that none of them have ever attained to any great eminence, without an attachment, we can find no better word for it, to some woman of superior understanding who has united within herself great talents for society with a high and soaring ambition." They who only recognize in the world of politics the dry details of ordinary parliamentary business, poor law questions, sanitary rules, railroad bills, and colonial grants can form but a scanty notion of the excitement derived from the high interests of party and the great game played by about twenty mighty gamblers, with the whole world for the table and kingdoms for counters. In this grand women perform no ignoble part nay it were not too much to say that theirs is the very motive power of the whole vast machinery had we any right to step beyond the limits of our story for illustration it would not be difficult to quote names enough to show that we are speaking not at hazard but from book and that great events derive far less of their impulse from the lords than from the ladies of creation whatever be the part they take in these contests their chief attention is ever directed not to the smaller battlefield of home questions but to the greater and wider campaign of international politics men may wrangle and hair split and divide about a harbor bill or a road session but women occupy themselves in devising how thrones may be shaken and dynasties disturbed, how frontiers may be changed and nationalities trafficked, for, strange as it may seem, the stupendous incidents which mold human destinies are more under the influence of passion and intrigue than the commonest events of everyday life. Our readers may, and not very unreasonably, begin to suspect that it was in some moment of abstraction we wrote Glencore at the head of these pages, and that these speculations are but the preface to some very abstruse reflections upon the political condition of Europe. But no, they are simply intended as a prelude to the fact that Sir Horace Upton was not exempt from the weakness of his order, and that he too reposed his trust upon a woman's judgment. The name of his illustrious guide was a princess Sablukov, by birth a Pole, but married to a Russian of vast wealth and high family, from whom she separated early in life, to mingle in the world with all the prestige of position, riches, and, greater than either, extreme beauty, and a manner of such fascination as made her name of European celebrity. When Sir Horace first met her, he was a junior member of our embassy at Naples, and she the distinguished leader of fashion in that city. We are not about to busy ourselves with the various narratives which professed to explain her influence at court, or the secret means to which she owed her ascendancy over Royal Highnesses, and her sway over cardinals, enough that she possessed such, and that the world knew it. The same success attended her at Vienna and at Paris she was courted and sought after everywhere, and if her arrival was not feted with the public demonstrations that await royalty, it was assuredly an event recognized with all that could flatter her vanity or minister to her self-esteem. When Sir Horace was presented to her as an attaché, she simply bowed and smiled. He renewed his acquaintance some ten years later as a secretary when she vouchsafed to say she remembered him a third time after a lapse of years he came before her as a charge d'affaires when she conversed with him and lastly when time had made him a minister and with less generosity had laid its impress upon herself she gave him her hand and said my dear Horace, how charming to see an old friend if you will be good enough to let me call you so and he was so. He accepted the friendship as frankly as it was proffered. He knew that time was when he could have no pretension to this distinction, but the beautiful princess was no longer young. The fascinations she had wielded were already a kind of court tradition. Archdukes and ambassadors were no more her slaves, nor was she the terror of jealous queens and court favorites. Sir Horace knew all this, but he also knew that, she being such his ambition had never dared to aspire to her friendship and it was only in her days of declining fortune that he could hope for such distinction all this may seem very strange and very odd dear reader but we live in very strange and very odd times and more than one-half the world is living on second-hand second-hand shawls and second-hand speeches second-hand books and court suits and opinions are all rife, and why not second-hand friendships? Now the friendship between a bygone beauty of forty, and we will not say how many more years, and a hackneyed, half-disgusted man of the world, of the same age, is a very curious contract. There is no love in it, as little is there any strong tie of esteem, but there is a wonderful bond of self-interest and mutual convenience. Each seems to have at last found one that understands him. Similarity of pursuit has engendered similarity of taste. They have each seen the world from exactly the same point of view, and they have come out of it equally heart-wearied and tired, stored with vast resources of social knowledge, and with a keen insight into every phase of that complex machinery by which one half the world cheats the other. Madame de Sablecoff was still handsome. She had far more than what is ill-naturedly called the remains of good looks. She had a brilliant complexion, lustrous dark eyes, and a profusion of the most beautiful hair. She was, besides, a most splendid dresser. Her toilette was the very perfection of taste, and if a little inclining to over-magnificence, not the less becoming, to one whose whole air and bearing assumed something of queenly dignity. In the world of society, there is a very great prestige attends those who have at some one time played a great part in life. The deposed king, the ex-minister, the banished general, and even the bygone beauty, receive a species of respectful homage, which the wider world without doors is not always ready to accord them. Good breeding, in fact, concedes what mere justice might deny, and they who have to fall back upon souvenirs for their greatness, always find their advantage in associating with the class whose prerogative is good manners. The Princess Sablakov was not, however, one of those who can live upon the interest of a bygone fame. She saw that, when the time of coquetry and its fascinations had passed, still, with faculties like hers, there was yet a great game to be played. Hitherto, she had only studied characters. Now she began to reflect upon events. The transition was an easy one, to which her former knowledge contributed largely its assistance. There was scarcely a royalty, hardly a leading personage, in Europe she did not know personally and well. She had lived in intimacy with ministers and statesmen and great politicians. She knew them in all that life of the Salon, where men alternately expand into frankness and practice the wily devices of their crafty callings. She had seen them in all the weaknesses, too, of inferior minds, eager after small objects, tormented by insignificant cares. They who habitually dealt with these mighty personages, only beheld them in their dignity of station, were surrounded by the imposing accessories of office. What an advantage, then, to regard them closer and nearer, to be aware of their shortcomings, and acquainted with the secret springs of their ambitions. The princess and Sir Horace very soon saw that each needed the other. When Robert Macaire accidentally met an accomplished gamester, who turned the king as often as he did and could reciprocate every trick and artifice with him he threw down the card saying Mresson's nous nous sans frere now the illustration is a very ignoble one but it conveys no very inexact idea of the bond which united these two distinguished individuals sir horace was one of those fine acute intelligences which may be gapped and blunted if applied to rough work but are splendid instruments where you would cut cleanly and cut deep. She saw this at once. He, too, recognized in her a wonderful knowledge of life, joined to vast powers of employing it with profit. No more was wanting to establish a friendship between them. Dispositions must be, to a certain degree, different between those who are to live together as friends, but tastes must be alike. Theirs were so. They had the same veneration for the same things, the same regard for the same celebrities, and the same contempt for the small successes which were engaging the minds of many around them. If the princess had a real appreciation of the fine abilities of Sir Horace, he estimated at their full value all the resources of her wondrous tact and skill, and the fascinations which even yet surrounded her. Have we said enough to explain the terms of this alliance, or must we make one more confession, and own that her insidious praise, a flattery too delicate and fine ever to be committed to absolute eulogy, convinced her horse that she alone, of all the world, was able to comprehend the vast stores of his knowledge and the wide measure of his capacity as a statesman? In the great game of statecraft, diplomatists are not above looking into each other's hands but this must always be accomplished by means of a confederate how terribly alike are all human rogueries whether the scene be a conference at vienna or the tent of a thimble-rig at ascot la sabloukoff was unrivaled in the art she knew how to push raillery and persiflage to the very frontiers of truth and even peep over and see what lay beyond sir horace traded on the material with which she supplied him and acquired the reputation of being all that was crafty and subtle in diplomacy how did upton know this whence came he by that what mysterious source of information is he possessed of who could have revealed such a secret to him were questions often asked in that dreary old drawing-room of downing street where men's destinies are shaped and the fate of millions decided from four o'clock to six of an afternoon often and often were the measures of the cabinet shaped by the tidings which arrived with all the speed of a foreign courier over and over again were the speeches in parliament based upon information received from him it has even happened that the news from his hand has caused the telegraph of the admiralty to signalize the thunderer to put to sea with all haste in a word he was the trusted agent of our government whether ruled by a whig or a tory and his dispatches were ever regarded as a sure warranty for action the english minister at a foreign court labors under one great disadvantage which is that his policy and all the consequences that are to follow it are rarely if ever shaped with any reference to the state of matters then existing in his own country absorbed as he is in great european questions how can he follow with sufficient attention the course of events at home or recognize in the signs and tokens of the division list the changeful fortunes of poverty, he may be advising energy when the cry is all for temporizing counseling patience and submission when the nation is eager for a row recommend religious concessions in the very week that exeter hall is denouncing toleration or actually suggesting aid to a government that a popular orator has proclaimed to be everything that is unjust and ignominious it was Sir Horace Upton's fortune to have fallen into one of these embarrassments. He had advised the home government to take some measures, or at least look with favor on certain movements of the Poles in Russia, in order the better to obtain some concessions then required from the cabinet of the Tsar. The premier did not approve of the suggestion, nor was it like to meet acceptance at home. We were in a pro-Russian fever at the moment some mob disturbances at norwich a chartist meeting at stockport and something else in wales had frightened the nation into a hot stage of conservatism and never was there such an ill-chosen moment to succor poles or awaken dormant nationalities upton's proposal was rejected he was even visited with one of those disagreeable acknowledgments by which the foreign office reminds a speculative minister that he is going ultra crepidum when an envoy is snubbed he always asks for leave of absence if the castigation be severe he invariably on his return to england goes to visit the leader of the opposition this is the ritual sir horace however only observed it in half he came home but after his first morning's attendance at the foreign office he disappeared none saw or heard of him he knew well all the value of mystery and he accordingly disappeared from public view altogether When, therefore, Harcourt's letter reached him, proposing that he should visit Glencore, the project came most opportunely, and that he only accepted it for a day was in the spirit of his habitual diplomacy, since he then gave himself all the power of an immediate departure, or permitted the option of remaining gracefully, in defiance of all pre-engagements, and all plans to be elsewhere. We have been driven, for the sake of this small fact, to go a great way round in our history, but we promise our readers that Sir Horace was one of those people whose motives are never tracked without a considerable detour. The reader knows now why he was at Glencore. He already knew how. The terrible interview with Glencore brought back a second relapse of greater violence than the first, and it was nigh a fortnight ere he was pronounced out of danger. It was a strange life that Harcourt and Upton led in that dreary interval. Guests of one whose life was in utmost peril they met in that old gallery each day to talk, in half-whispered sentences, over the sick man's case and his chances of recovery. Harcourt frankly told Upton that the first relapse was a consequence of a scene between Glencore and himself. Upton made no similar confession. He reflected deeply, however, over all that had passed, and came to the conclusion that, in Glencore's present condition, opposition might prejudice his chance of recovery, but never availed to turn him from his project. He also set himself to study the boy's character, and found it, in all respects, the very type of his father's. Great bashfulness united to great boldness, timidity, and distrust were there side by side with a rash, impetuous nature that would hesitate at nothing in pursuit of an object. Pride, however, was the great principle of his being the good and evil motive of all that was in him. He had pride on every subject, his name, his rank, his station, a consciousness of natural quickness, a sense of aptitude to learn whatever came before him. All gave him the same feeling of pride. There's a deal of good in that lad," said Harcourt to Upton one evening, as the boy had left the room. I like his strong affection for his father, and that unbounded faith he seems to have in glencore's being better than every one else in the world it is an excellent religion my dear harcourt if it could only last said the diplomat smiling amiably and why shouldn't it last asked the other impatiently just because nothing lasts that has its origin in ignorance the boy has seen nothing of life has had no opportunity for forming a judgment or instituting a comparison between any two objects the first shot that breaches that same fortress of belief, down will come the whole edifice. You'd give a lad to the Jesuits, then, to be trained up in every artifice and distrust? Far from it, Harcourt. I think their system a mistake all through. The science of life must be self learned, and it is a slow acquisition. All that education can do is to prepare the mind to receive it. Now, to employ the first years of a boy's life by storing him with prejudices is just to encumber a vessel with a rotten cargo that she must throw overboard before she can load with a profitable freight. "'And is it in that category you'd class his love for his father?' asked the colonel. "'Of course not, but any unnatural or exaggerated estimate of him is a great error, to lead to an equally unfair depreciation when the time of deception is past.' to be plain harcourt is that boy fitted to enter one of our great public schools stand the hard rough usage of his own equals and buffet it as you or i have done why not or at least why shouldn't he become so after a month or two just because in that same month or two he'd either die broken-hearted or plunge his knife into the heart of some comrade who insulted him not a bit of it you don't know him at all charlie is a fine give-and-take fellow a little proud perhaps because he lives apart from all that are his equals let glencore just take courage to send him to harrow or rugby and my life on it but he'll be the manliest fellow in the school i'll undertake without harrow or rugby that the boy should become something even greater than that said upton smiling oh i know you sneer at my ideas of what a young fellow ought to be said harcourt but somehow you did not neglect these same pursuits yourself. You can shoot as well as most men, and you ride better than any I know of. One likes to do a little of everything, Harcourt, said Upton, not at all displeased at this flattery, and somehow it never suits a fellow who really feels that he has fair abilities to do anything badly, so that it comes to this, one does it well or not at all. Now, you never heard me touch the piano? Never just because I'm only an inferior performer, and so I only play when perfectly alone. Egad, if I could only master a waltz or one of the melodies, I'd be at it whenever anyone would listen to me. You're a good soul, and full of amiability, Harcourt, said Upton, but the words sounded very much as though he said, You're a dear, good, sensible creature, without an atom of self-respect or esteem. Indeed, so conscious was Harcourt that the expression meant no compliment, that he actually reddened and looked away. At last he took courage to renew the conversation and said, And what would you advise for the boy, then? I'd scarcely lay down a system, but I'll tell you what I would not do. I'd not bore him with mathematics. I'd not put his mind on the stretch in any direction. I'd not stifle the development of any taste that may be struggling within him, but rather encourage and foster it since it is precisely by such an indication you'll get some clue to his nature do you understand me i'm not quite sure i do but i believe you'd leave him to something like utter idleness what to you my dear harcourt would be utter idleness i've no doubt but not to him perhaps again the colonel looked mortified but evidently knew not how to resent this new sneer well said he after a pause the lad will not require to be a genius so much the better for him, probably, at all events, so much the better for his friends, and all who are to associate with him. Here he looked fixedly at Upton, who smiled the most courteous acquiescence in the opinion. A politeness that made poor Harcourt perfectly ashamed of his own rudeness, and he continued hurriedly, He'll have abundance of money. The life Glencore leads here will be like a long minority to him. A fine old name and title, and the deuce is in it if he can't rub through life pleasantly enough with such odds i believe you are right after all harcourt said upton sighing and now speaking in a far more natural tone it is rubbing through with the best of us and no more if you mean that the process is a very irksome one i enter my dissent at once broke in harcourt i am not ashamed to own that i like life prodigiously and if i be spared to say so i'm sure i'll have the same story to tell 15 or 20 years hence and yet i'm not a genius no said upton smiling a bland assent nor philosopher either said harcourt irritated at the acknowledgement certainly not chimed in upton with another smile nor have i any wish to be one or the other rejoined harcourt now really provoked i know right well that if i were in trouble or difficulty tomorrow If I wanted a friend to help me with a loan of some thousand pounds, it is not to a genius or philosopher I'd look for the assistance. It is ever a chance shot that explodes a magazine, and so is it that a random speech is sure to hit the mark that has escaped all the efforts of skillful direction. Upton winced and grew pale at these last words, and he fixed his penetrating gray eyes upon the speaker with a keenness all his own. Harcourt, however wore the look without the slightest touch of uneasiness the honest colonel had spoken without any hidden meaning nor had he the slightest intention of a personal application in his words of this fact upton appeared soon to be convinced for his features gradually recovered their wonted calmness how perfectly right you are my dear harcourt said he mildly the man who expects to be happier by the possession of genius "'is like one who would like to warm himself through a burning glass.' "'Egad! That is a great consolation for us slow fellows,' said Harcourt, laughing. "'And now what say you to a game of the "'For I believe it is just the one solitary thing. "'I am more than your match in.' "'I accept inferiority in a great many others,' said Upton blandly. "'But I must decline the challenge, for I have a letter to write, "'and our post here starts at daybreak.' "'Well, I'd rather carry the whole bag than indict one of its contents,' said the colonel, rising, and with a hearty shake of the hand he left the room. A letter was fortunately not so great an infliction to Upton, who opened his desk at once, and with a rapid hand traced the following lines. "'My dear princess, my last will have told you how and when I came here. I wish I but knew in what way to explain why I still remain. Imagine the dreariest desolation of calabria in a climate of fog and sea drift sunless skies leafless trees impassable roads the outdoor comforts the joys within depending on a gloomy old house with a few gloomier inmates and a host on a sick bed yet with all this i believe i am better the doctor a strange unsophisticated creature a cross between gallon and caliban seems to have hit off what the great dawns of science never could detect the true seat of my malady he says and he really reasons out his case ingeniously that the brain has been working for the inferior nerves not limiting itself to cerebral functions but actually performing the humbler office of muscular direction and so forth in fact a field marshal doing duty for a common soldier i almost fancy i can corroborate his view from internal sensations i have a kind of secret instinct that he is right poor brain why it should do the work of another department, with abundance of occupation of its own, I cannot make out. But to turn to something else. This is not a bad refuge just now. They cannot make out where I am, and all the inquiries at my club are answered by a vague impression that I have gone back to Germany, which the people at foreign office are aware is not the case. I have already told you that my suggestion has been negatived in the cabinet. It was ill-timed, Allington says, but I ventured to remind his lordship that a policy requiring years to develop and more years still to push to a profitable conclusion is not to be reduced to the category of mere apropos measures. He was vexed and replied weakly and angrily. I rejoined and left him. Next day he sent for me, but my reply was, I was leaving town, and I left. I don't want the bath, because it would be ill-timed, so that they must give me Vienna, or be satisfied to see me in the House and the Opposition. Your tidings of Brekhanov came exactly in the nick. Hallington said pompously that they were sure of him, so I just said, ask him if they would like our sending a consular agent to Krakow. It seems that he was so flurried by a fancy detection that he made a full acknowledgement of all. But even at this, Hallington takes no alarm. The malady of the treasury benches is deafness with a touch of blindness, what a cumbrous piece of bungling machinery is this boasted representative government of ours no pompitude no secrecy everything debated and discussed and discouraged before begun every blot hit for an antagonist to profit by even the characters of our public men exposed and their weaknesses displayed to view so that every state of europe may see where to wound us and through whom there is no use in the countess remaining here any longer the king never noticed her at the last ball She is angry at it, and if she shows her irritation, she'll spoil all. I always thought Josephine would fail in England. It is, indeed, a widely different thing to succeed in the small courts of Germany and our great whirlpool of St. James. You could do it, my dear friend, but where is the other dare attempt it? Until I hear from you again, I can come to no resolution. One thing is clear. They do not, or they will not, see the danger I have pointed out to them. All the home policy of our country is drifting, day by day, towards a democracy. How, in the name of common sense, then, is our foreign policy to be maintained at the standard of the Holy Alliances? What an absurd juxtaposition is there between popular rights and an alliance with the Tsar! The peril will overtake them one day or another, and then, to escape from national indignation, the minister, whoever he may be, will be driven to make war. But I can't wait for this, and yet, were I to resign, my resignation would not embarrass him. It would irritate and annoy, but not disconcert. Brekhanov will surely go home on leave. You ought to meet him. He is certain to be at Ems. It is the refuge of disgraced diplomacy. Try if something cannot be done with him. He used to say formerly yours were the only dinners now in Europe. He hates Allington. This feeling and his love for white truffles are, I believe, the only clues to the man. Be sure, however, that the truffles are Piedmontese. They have a slight flavor of garlic, rather agreeable than otherwise. Like Josephine's Lisp, it is a defect that serves for a distinction. The article in Beaumont was clever, prettily written, and even well worked out, but state affairs are never really well treated save by those who conduct them one must have played the game himself to understand all the nice subtleties of the contest. These your mere reviewer or newspaper scribe never attains to, and then he has no reserves, none of those mysterious concealments that are to negotiations like the eloquent pauses of conversation, the moment when dialogue ceases and the real interchange of ideas begins. The fine touch, the keen apperçu belongs alone to those who have had to exercise these same qualities in the treatment of great questions. And hence, it is that though the public be often much struck, and even enlightened, by the powerful article, or the able leader, the statesman is rarely taught anything by the journalist, save the force and direction of public opinion. I had a deal to say to you about poor Glencore, whom you tell me you remember, but how to say it. He is broken-hearted, literally broken-hearted by her desertion of him it was one of those ill-assorted leagues which cannot hold together why they did not see this and make the best of it sensibly dispassionately even amicably it is difficult to say an englishman it would seem must always hate his wife if she cannot love him and after all how involuntary are all affections and what a severe penalty is this for an unwitting offence he ponders over this calamity just as if it were the crushing stroke by which a man's whole career was to be finished forever the stupidity of all stupidities is in these cases to fly from the world and avoid society by doing this a man rears a barrier he can never repass he proclaims aloud his sentiment of the injury quite forgetting all the offence he is giving to the hundred and fifty others who in the same predicament as himself are by no means disposed to turn hermits on account of it. Men make revolutionary governments, smash dynasties, transgress laws, but they cannot oppose convenances. I need scarcely say that there is nothing to be gained by reasoning with him. He has worked himself up to a chronic fury and talks of vengeance all day long, like a Corsican. For company here, I have an old brother-officer of my days of tinsel and pipe-clay, an excellent creature, whom I amuse myself by tormenting. There is also Glencore's boy, a strange, dreamy kind of haughty fellow, an exaggeration of his father in disposition, but with good abilities. These are not the elements of much social agreeability, but you know, dear friend, how little I stand in need of what is called company. Your last letter, charming as it was, has afforded me all the companionship I could desire. I have reread it till I know it by heart. I could almost chide you for that delightful little party in my absence. But of course it was, as all you ever do is, perfectly right. And, after all, I am perhaps not sorry that you had those people when I was away, so that we shall be more chez nous when we meet. But when is that to be? Who can tell? My medico insists upon five full weeks for my cure. Allington is very likely, in his present temper, to order me back to my post. You seem to think that you must be in Berlin when Sekendorf arrives, so that... But I will not darken the future by gloomy forebodings. I could leave this, that is, if any urgency required it, at once. But if possible, it is better I should remain at least a little longer. My last meeting with Glencore was unpleasant. Poor fellow, his temper is not what it used to be, and he is forgetful of what is due to one whose nerves are in the sad state of mind. You shall hear all my complainings when we meet, dear princess. And with this, I kiss your hand, begging you to accept all mes hommage et mon estime, Horace Upton. Your letter must be addressed Linnane, Ireland. Your last had only Glencore on it, and not very legible either so that it made what I wished I could do, the tour of Scotland, before reaching me. Sir Horace read over his letter carefully, as though it had been a dispatch, and, when he had done, folded it up with an air of satisfaction. He had said nothing that he wished unsaid, and he had mentioned a little about everything he desired to touch upon. He then took his drops from a queer-looking little file he carried about with him, and, having looked at his face in a pocket-glass, he half closed his eyes in reverie. Strange, confused visions were they that flitted through his brain, thoughts of ambition the most daring, fancies about health, speculations in politics, finance, religion, literature, the arts, society, all came and went. Plans and projects jostled each other at every instant. Now his brow would darken, and his thin lips closed tightly, as some painful impression crossed him. Now again a smile, a slight laugh even, betrayed the passing of some amusing conception. It was easy to see how such a nature could suffice to itself, and how little he needed of that give-and-take which companionship supplies. He could, to steal a figure from our steam language, he could bank his fires, and await any emergency, and, while scarcely consuming any fuel, prepare for the most trying demand upon his powers a hasty movement of feet overhead and the sound of voices talking loudly aroused him from his reflections while a servant entered abruptly to say that lord glencore wished to see him immediately is his lordship worse asked upton no sir but he was very angry with the young lad this evening about something and they say that with the passion he opened the bandage on his head and set the vein of bleeding again Billy Traynor is there now trying to stop it. I'll go upstairs, said Sir Horace, rising and beginning to fortify himself with caps and capes and comforters, precautions that he never omitted when moving from one room to the other. End of Chapter 11 Recording by The Grumpy Old Squid of Tidewater, Virginia